Hi, welcome to BCI CalChat. I'm Brad White. Happy to have Dr. Lubers and Dr. Lancaster with me today. Morning, Brian. Morning, Brad. Morning, Philip. Hi, Brad. We're happy to have you listening as well. As always, if you enjoy listening to this podcast, we've got another podcast which goes a little more in-depth on specific topics. And, and Brian has done some on antibiotics, antibiotic use. Philip has done some especially looking at grazing some of the grasses. And that's our bovine science with BCI podcast. And I think everybody's enjoyed that so far. So you may want to give that a listen as well. Today, we've got a couple different topics that we're going to address. We're going to talk about abortions. And, and really, as we get close to calving, which of those calves, how do we differentiate a calf that may have been born dead or one that was born alive and died soon after birth? And what diagnostic samples might we want to send in? as well as addressing a listener question related to how do I follow up on data after my calves leave the farm? Can I get some performance information? And then we'll wrap up talking about supplementing cows post-calving, especially those cows that might be a little bit thinner. Before we get into those topics, guys, I need your input and help. I don't know how to, and you would say this may be a solvable problem, but maybe I'm the only one that sometimes leaves the hydrant on and walks back into the house and then comes back out to a big puddle. How do you remember to turn off the hydrant when you're filling up your water tanks? And, and don't just say, just remember. I need some, I need some help. Well, I'll, I'll say as somebody who's come back to the river of shame many minutes later, honestly, I can't leave anymore. But I'm, you just got to stay yeah, there. Yeah, I got to stay there. My, my brain got too much going on. And for me to try to remember to go shut the faucet off is probably not a viable option so put a float on the end of the hose oh yeah <laughs> philip is a practical see we used no. to have a water hat which was actually a hat that we got from a centerpiece at a dinner that had all kinds of flowers and stuff coming off the top of it and so you'd wear the water hat because you would know the water's <laughs> on if you've got the water hat on. is that like but, is that like tying a ribbon around your finger sort of yeah okay <laughs> But the problem was we lost the water hat. So now I'm at a loss. I can't So Maybe I just need to get a new water hat. <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, the river of shame. The river of shame. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I like that. So, Brian, let's talk. I want to talk a little bit about. So we're coming up on calving season, and some people have started calving. But there are some of those calves that you find in the pasture that have died. And, and we want to differentiate between was this an abortion or was this a calf that was born and then died because we may manage those things differently. And, and I'll start with some of the maybe some of the easier things. What would tell you that you'd look at the calf and you'd go, OK, this there's no way this calf was born live. Just looking at him right away. Yeah, so there's there's a couple things we can do. I guess a couple easy things we can do to kind of estimate the, the fetal age. So one of those is we can take a measurement. And, it, and again, it's an estimation, but uh, we measure from from basically the cap, the crown, so the top of the or the pole, maybe the top of the calf skull to its rump. We measure that length. And there's there's actually I just saw earlier there's a calculator online you can use. I think it's the University of Nebraska, and you plug in what that measurement was, and it tells you how many what the estimated fetal age was in days. So that's a, that's a good way to start um, if you want to be pretty precise. There's some obvious clues, you know, and depending on how wide your calving distribution is, we kind of expect, you know, if we have a narrow distribution, they're all going to be pretty close. But if, if it's a little wider, you know, when we see calves that have hair, we see calves that if their teeth are erupted, things like that are indications that this is a late, a, either a later term abortion or a calf that died shortly after birth. And as a veterinarian, one of the kind of one of the ultimate tests that we use is 
when we do the necropsy, <clears throat> we take a piece of lung and we put it in water. And if that calf was born alive and took a breath, then that lung fills up with air and the lung will float. Um, if you put the lung in the water and it sinks to the bottom, then that lung was never aerated. So that calf never took a breath. And so we would say that that's a, that's a late term abortion. So, so it was a late term abortion, late-term still abortion. Yep. born, born dead. Mm-hmm. And so to kind of recap that no hair, he, he wasn't ready to come out. The calf wasn't yep. ready to come out. If it, its teeth have not erupted yet, not ready to come out. If his lungs don't float, he had never taken a breath. So th- those yep. are kind of in order of, of kind of ease of looking at. And, and sometimes you look at those calves. And, and the measurement too, Brad. And don't the forget. measurement. Yep. yep, and the measurement. So uh, sometimes I think it's important to differentiate that because we have some diseases that can cause late-term abortions. And we also have different diseases that can cause those calves to get sick soon after birth and die. So we want to differentiate between those two and and often when you mentioned doing a necropsy there may be some samples that you take if you think that might have been an abortion yeah and one of probably the biggest reason to differentiate was this a was this a late term abortion or a neonatal mortality is kind of how i proceed as far as working up that case at all right and so we have they often ask the question you know so we will get single abortions uh, for a a variety of reasons. Some of them are infectious. Some of them are not infectious. Abortion workups tend to be a little frustrating because even when we do diagnostics, sometimes they're not rewarding because a lot of times the insult to that fetus happened way before it was actually aborted from. So the the calf may have been dead in utero for quite a while. um, And now we're just seeing kind of the final stage of that process. And so but we always want to know if this is the beginning of an abortion storm, I want to jump right on diagnostics, right? I want to know now so that if there is an intervention I can take, maybe I can shut it off earlier by doing something. And so that's why it's important to differentiate, was this a, a late-term abortion versus a neonatal mortality? So we want to know, is this the first one of yep. several, or is it the only one? And you can't tell when you've got one. So there are times that we'll take samples and bank those samples in case we see others come up, mm-hmm. keep a close eye. The other thing I, I would mention, we're talking about the calf. The placenta may or may not be there with him. Your vet will probably want to see the placenta if if it's available. Yeah, yeah. And you, I'm sorry, you had asked about samples too. So um, for abortion workups, we want a little bit of everything. So uh, we would want tissue samples of lung, liver, uh, muscle, brain tissue can be important. Kidney tissue might be important. Uh, abomasal fluid is a really important diagnostic. So when that calf is in uterus, in the uterus during that gestation period, um, they actually are, are kind of swallowing the fluid around them. And so a lot of times we'll find out if there's a viral infection or bacterial infection, we'll find that agent in their abomasal fluid as well. And honestly, what we and the the you mentioned the placenta the, the placenta is actually a really really important diagnostic specimen for us to have so we even if it's it's dirty it's been in the lot there's still we can still do some tests on that to maybe help differentiate the cause of that abortion and our, my recommendation is just to send all of that um, and if your veterinarian's coming out to do a necropsy that's great they can take the samples we need if it's a if it's a smaller fetus. Um, we've actually had, uh, producers that have 
wanted a diagnostic workup where they just take the limbs and, and disarticulate and send the rest of the calf in, in one specimen. And that has everything we need, right? So all those tissues I just mentioned would all be there. Um, and it's, you, you know, you save a little bit on shipping by taking the limbs off, but then, then there's everything and we can go back. And you mentioned banking. Um, if people are wanting to bank samples. So if this was Maybe you think this might be the first one, or maybe this is the only one and you're not sure. Go ahead and collect those samples. Uh, your veterinarian can help you. We can we can take some preserved samples, so we put those in formalin. You can save those, and we can refrigerate tissues for a short period of time. Um, the refrigerated tissues, usually for a couple days. After that, they're probably not worth keeping. But the fixed tissues... We can keep those for a long, long periods of time. Yep. Work with work with your vet. Yeah, they, they can come out and get those samples. Also, they may want to take a look at the cows, and you may want to look at the cows because there are some different processes that we think about. That some of which the cows will look sick, some of them they won't look sick. And I would encourage you to write it down. All the stuff that we think we're gonna, all the stuff I think I'm gonna remember, like turning off the water, I forget. <laughs> So you've got to write it down, which cow it was, what day it was, at what time it was. And yeah, and sometimes in some situations, we may actually want to take some samples from the cows themselves. So uh, we can we can do antibody titers to look for certain pathogens. It's not typically our best test because there's a delay in that immune response for us to be able to do the testing on it. But again, if we're wanting to do a full workup and, and if this, we've been talking about situations where this is the first suspected abortion, but if we certainly if we get into an outbreak where we've now had two, three, four abortions and we're convinced that, yeah, this is actually an, an abortion outbreak, um, then we would get more involved with our sampling. Let's say the cows might be the next step is to, to draw some blood off the cows and look at some titers too. Yeah, absolutely. And not to, not to overreact early because cows will occasionally lose calves close to calving or even a little further away and and you'll see it as as a one-off right it was a fluke or whatever happened you don't need a lot of investigation on that but as we said earlier you don't know if it's the only one or the first one so i would try to document as much as you can through the process yeah yeah and we've seen cases you know we typically when we think of abortions we think of infectious agents that cause abortions um, but we know those kind of one-off abortions, if the cow or herself gets sick from something else, the example we've seen probably more frequently here in, in years past is if a cow has a severe case of anaplasmosis, the anaplasmosis itself isn't, we don't think it causes the abortion, but the cow is so sick, she can't support the pregnancy anymore. It leads to abortion. So those are other things that kind of help if you're trying to determine if this is a one-off or the beginning of an outbreak. Maybe, maybe a little investigation in the cow will give you a clue that way too. Yep, absolutely. So good, good feedback there, Brian, and something to watch for as we go through calving season to see if any of those occur. Thinking on the other end of the spectrum, after those calves are weaned, we got a great question from a, a listener at, actually at the NCBA conference when we were there. And the, and the question was, I would like to find out how well my cattle perform after I sell them from the cow-calf ranch. What are some of the ways I can do that? Philip, I'm going to turn to you and get us started on this conversation. Well, probably one of the best ways, and it doesn't involve selling them, but retaining ownership of those calves. That way, you've got all your calves together. If you're going to retain ownership, the feed yard is going to manage them as a separate group. They're not going to commingle them with other calves from other owners. That way, then you can get all the information from your group of calves back to you. So Dustin's not here. I'm going to jump in and say, 
retained ownership greatly changes my risk and cash flow. So if I've been selling them at weaning, retained ownership is a big jump. Yes, it is. Yep. And so you've got to, you've got to really pencil that out and, and have the risk management safeguards in place to help you get through that process without losing your shirt, so to speak. So if I don't want to do that, <clears throat> what are there other options? Yes. So another other options would be if you're, especially if you're a smaller operation, you don't have enough numbers to fill a feedlot pen. A lot of state extension programs have a, what they call a steer feed out program. So you can, again, you're retaining ownership. You're going you're gonna to pay the feed bill for those animals, but it's not a whole lot of animals. And that way you can put some of your animals in that program, find out how they perform in the feedlot, get carcass data back, and see what you've got from a genetic standpoint from post-weaning. Another way would just be to have a good relationship with the feed yard that your cattle go to, which you, you, know, you may know that, you may not, depending on how many you're selling and, and that sort of stuff. But then you could get information back from the yard um, they may be commingled but at least you get some information back from that yard um, on your calves so brian as you as you think about selling those calves and, and maybe we'll move to the some of the options that philip discussed we're selling them at weaning what what's some of the maybe health information you'd like to get back or you'd like to learn about how your cattle did post weaning so that you can evaluate the health program yeah i think i mean i think the health stuff is pretty straightforward right i think i'd i'd want to know morbidity i think that would be a a, and i probably i probably what would be nice would be to see morbidity curve data so i want to know at what time in the feed yard did they get sick because if i if i again if i'm if i have something invested in this and i'm really trying to make some management changes on my operation if there are calves that got sick very early in the feeding period i probably have as a cow-calf producer, I have a lot more influence over that health aspect than cattle that got sick later in the feeding period. I'd also want to know mortality causes, right? Is so um, if it's respiratory disease early in the feeding period, I I may be able to have a lot more influence over that from a health aspect than bloat that happened late in the feeding period, right? And so the cause of mortality, the timing of mortality, morbidity, so, so death loss would be important, but there are a lot of things that play into death loss that are really outside my control. The other thing, and and I don't know if you would, you probably could get this if you had that relationship with a feed yard. The other, the other piece of information that might be useful to me is I'll just generically say like a benchmark. I want to know what those numbers are for the entire yard too. So it just gives me an idea. Are my, are my cattle performing better or worse than other cattle that 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 yard is receiving. So, so not only the percent that get sick or morbidity, mm-hmm. but also the morbidity curve and when they got sick, broken down probably by causes. By so, cause. did they get sick soon after they arrived or later in the feeding phase, and then the mortality or death loss in that group? But focus on the on the morbidity side. So that that's kind of sums up what I want to learn health wise. Philip, what what about performance and carcass? What are some of the characteristics you'd like to get back on on the cattle if you could? Well, I'd really like to know feed efficiency and rate of gain on those cattle. That, but then that that requires since we feed cattle as a pen as a group, that requires that your cattle are the only cattle in that group, and so that's the that's the one. You got to have there. a pen, uh, a, a pen sized lot or a, mm-hmm. enough cattle to fill a pen. Yep, and that you know depending on what 
custom yard you're going to that may be as little as 40 head or as much as you know one to 200 head depending on uh, what you've got and then from a carcass standpoint i want to know yield and quality grade i'd i'd like to know dress how what what are they how did they dress what what percentage of that live animal weight was actually carcass and then then if i can get other things like uh, marbling score and uh, ribeye area, those would be great. Um, but I can surely get the, the USDA quality and yield grade from the so, so carcass and, report. And the quality and yield grade, the, the quality grade is a measure of essentially marbling. And it's going to tell us, and that's where we're talking prime, choice, select. Uh, the yield grade is, is also referred to sometimes as cutability. And it's basically percent fat versus meat with Higher yield grade scores being more fat, yield grade four being mm-hmm. fat, and yield grade one being very thin. Those are those are the type of numbers you want to get back, and on an individual or group basis. Oh, on an individual. So I mean, it's going to come through as an individual. Um, you're going to need an electronic ID, of some type to go through the for the plant to get that data for you, because they're going to get it on an individual basis. Um, a lot of those plants these days are using camera grading, and so. That actually makes that process a lot easier because um, they're scanning that um, ribeye with the camera after they've cut the carcass at the at the 12th, 13th rib. And so then they, that all that data is automatically generated from that camera image. And so it makes it real easy to get everything, ribeye area, marbling score, and then it calculates a yield grade and a quality grade based on the, the marbling score. Yeah, absolutely. And I think... Great point there that you want to get the individual data. And as you talked about, multiple ways to do it. Relationship with the feed yard, working through a program, which could go through one of your, if you sell through an auction market, you just have to have those conversations beforehand of how can how can I make this work so that I can get data back. And just to add, because you didn't ask me about individual versus group, for, for the health records, I'm actually okay with group data because I, I think with Philip and the performance data, I'm looking to go back and manage individual breedings, right? And I'm going to do breeding selection to manage that. But from a health perspective, I'm really managing my herd. And I, I really expect it to be kind of a, it's all good, or I've got some problems kind of answer. And then how do I go back and fix that? So I think for health, group records are fine. Great point. Let's let's talk post-calving nutrition. And Philip, I'll, I'll turn to you. We've got a, a couple minutes here to talk about. We've talked about before, well, I should get my cattle prepared for calving. They should be in a body score five or six if they're heifers, six, five's okay for cows. What if they're not? <laughs> what if I'm here and I'm starting to calve and there's several of them that are body score four. They're a little bit thinner than I thought they were, but they're starting to calve. I know I probably need to feed them. What are they lacking? What are some of my options? Well, so the big thing is energy. They've, they've got to have the energy to, to produce the milk. I mean, protein's going to need to be there too, but the the increase in protein from a dry cow to a lactating cow is going from 8 to 10% of the diet. So it's not a big jump. But the energy requirement jumps up quite a bit. Um, and so we want to, we, especially if we've got a thin cow, we're going to try to maintain her. You know, a, th- a thin cow is going to cut her milk production back. Um, she's already got fewer body reserves, and so her milk yield is going to be less than her genetic potential because of the lower um, body reserves. And so I want to give her enough energy 
that I can, number one, maintain her current weight. I'm probably not going to be able to put weight on her because it's really hard to put weight on a early lactation cow. In fact, it's nearly impossible because she'll just put a lot more of that energy into milk than she will before she'll put it into body condition. But then I want to give her some, some extra energy to make sure that she is going to try to get her to close to her genetic potential for milk production as I can. That way, I'm not shortchanging that calf. And then I'm trying to make sure that she is going to have the signals um, shortly after calving to start estrus cycles again and be ready to rebreed as best she can. So when we think about method of delivery, one of the things that, that I've seen quite a bit is, and this may or may not tie into your energies, but like a molasses tub or putting out something like that, which has, I would think, a lot of energy. Is that help in this scenario? Or what are your thoughts on that mechanism? Uh, so those, those molasses lick tubs are generally a protein supplement. They're designed for relatively low intake, and they're typically high protein. Um, and so the goal there is a little bit of energy. You know, they're, they're sugar-based. So molasses is sugar. A little bit of sugar actually helps with forage digestion because you got a little bit of boost in microbial growth there. But then you're, that, that lick tub's really providing protein for a low-quality forage. And, and they're set up to be relatively low intake over a period of time and what you were just saying is after they calve if i really want to get nutrition to them i have to get their consumption up which may mean hand feeding yes yeah you're probably going to need a hand fed supplement based on commodities like soybean holes wheat mids distillers grains those type of things that you can you're going to deliver every day uh, to the group of cows and like if you do have a few that are that are thin and some that are not then hopefully you can sort off the thin ones because then you can feed just those the extra um, supplement that they need and not have to feed the whole herd. Oh, extra. great idea. So if you can segregate them, you can feed them separately. makes your hand feeding easier. But I think one of the things you know, whether we're talking lick tubs or some of the commercially prepared cattle cubes or some of the other things, a lot of those are geared towards supplementing low-quality forage through the winter. So they're protein-based rather than energy-based. So you may have to get something a little bit different and feed those cows, but if you can separate them, makes it a little bit easier. Oh, yeah, and makes it much cheaper. Absolutely. So thanks for your input on that, Philip. I think good discussions today, guys, and happy to have you listening with us. If you have any comments, questions, or things you'd like us to talk about, you can always send us an email at bci at ksu.edu.